When you hear the term social club or private club, what comes to mind? Cigars? Fireplaces? White linen on the table? Does the term old boys club come to mind? It does for me. So does exclusion, privilege, and retaining power. There are many old boys club in all aspects of our society, from informal locker rooms of college campuses to the halls of power in our nation's capital. But our guest, Ryan Wilson, founder of The Gathering Spot, is flipping the script on what a social club can be. Inspired by the killing of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman, Wilson and his friend T.K. Peterson were motivated to create a space for black professionals to not only network and socialize, but to hold conversations about the issues that matter to them. The idea was born while Wilson was attending Georgetown Law School. After a few years of working on the idea, Wilson and Peterson finally created what would become The Gathering Spot, with its first location in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. I actually got a chance to visit the club a couple years ago. It was not only a lovely space, but I felt like I belonged. Now The Gathering Spot has expanded to DC with over 2,000 members and is currently building out the Los Angeles location. Wilson's goal is to create a connected community to empower black professionals and creatives. During the pandemic, the Gathering Spot engaged the community with a variety of virtual events, including hosting presidential candidates during the 2020 election. Even Little Nas X hosted a homecoming party at the Atlanta location. Wilson is building something that I have never seen before, and I wanted to learn more about the community that he is building. His thoughts about the racial reckoning that has occurred after the murder of George Floyd and what responsibility does government and corporations have when it comes to racial justice and equity. But I wanted to start with where it all began, his childhood. I, I was born in Los Angeles and we moved every couple of years until we landed in Atlanta. So I very much so consider Atlanta home. It's where I uh, went to, to high school um, and we lived about 30 minutes north of the city. And so a lot of uh, my, my first kind of stint in Atlanta was not being um, in Atlanta proper, but definitely being influenced by all of the things that were happening. Uh, we moved for the first time in 96, which is the same year as the Olympics. And so Atlanta is, uh, is, is a special place to me. And my parents um, worked for uh, companies up until right in, in middle school, where my dad, I remember uh, the, the day that he had two folks in our basement and uh, he was starting a company. So after working for the, this company called Dun & Bradstreet for 16 years, they started to outsource their call center business and he had been running their call centers. And he decided, well, hey, I'll uh, I'll take a shot at opening my own call center. And that uh, that company was called Rylo Teller's Services. So my name is Ryan, my sister's name is uh, Lauren. And so we took the two first letters of our, our name and it, it just took off. I, I remember, you know, going from those two people to the first building, uh, to another building. And by the time they, they ended up selling the company in 2010, uh, there were several thousand employees across the country. And Ryla had gone to, to become, you know, a pretty significant player in the call center space. And I, I, uh, that was my first kind of experience with, with business. And so did you, did you, uh, like, you know, I hear a lot of stories about how, like, these uh, startup founders got their taste of first entrepreneurship as a as a youth, right? They started their own like lemonade stand or, or lawn mowing business. Did you, other than your just being around your family in a business, 
Did you dabble as a youth in uh, trying to create your own kind of enterprise? No, not not at all. I wanted to be a lawyer. And for as long as I, I can kind of think about just thinking, you know, about what I wanted to do, you know, when I when I uh, when I grew up, it was it was always about being an attorney. For me, that was the way that I thought I was going to be best equipped to help people. And a lot of my heroes growing up, you know, they had they had legal backgrounds. I was super into politics as a kid. Um, but my interaction with the business, I mean, my first job at 14 was working at the, the call center. Um, and my dad and mom were always super good about including us kind of in things that were happening with the business. But I didn't experience it as uh, learning. It just was kind of like the thing that my parents did. I was going to go off and be this attorney. It wasn't until, you know, fast forwarding um, a decade or so, I go to law school and figured out pretty quickly that I I, uh, I actually had the entrepreneurial bug too. Let's fast forward to uh, um, law school. Uh, you went to Georgetown, right? I did. I, I, went, uh, I went twice. So I went for undergrad and Loved it so much that um, I decided to go back. But I mean, those are some of the best years of my life. The I came to to DC in 2008 for undergrad. Um, campaigned a ton for President o- Obama and um, was in DC the night that he won. And I, I say that kind of like is the way that I think about my time um, in DC is just being in the district with the first black president was just uh, completely inspiring and again i'm chasing this dream of being a lawyer and uh super interested in politics so like all of that you know what was kind of happening during that time was uh, was super special and you know it, it a lot of ways connects to what we're doing at tgs because in undergrad i was working with a lot of community organizations did a ton on campus around diversity and inclusion and trying to make um the campus a more uh, diverse uh, place for particularly for black students and then as I, I got to law school I kind of continued that work but was doing more in DC um, and that's when the, the the urge to start TGS hit me. Georgetown is a predominantly uh, white university what was yeah. your experience like as a, uh, a black student? Yeah I mean it was it was interesting um I mean, Georgetown definitely uh, was a was a place that was uh, <laughs> nowhere near majority uh, black. But I mean, I, I'd say that I I created that that experience for myself. I mean, my business partner uh, was one of my 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 roommates in college, um, and my wife was um, you know was a student at school at the same time as me. So I mean, we we definitely were were um, in an environment that was you know challenging in some respects, but we we made it our mission to make sure that you know we kind of created the campus environment that would be comfortable for us. So uh, in the clubs that we attended and the the events that we hosted um, and our just general network, you know it was it was it was really black. Let's talk about uh. The gathering spot. So you're, you're going to school for law, right? You want to be a lawyer. How did you like decide to change and do this realm of a, a, a building, a space, a members club? I continued kind of the work that I was doing in undergrad. And um, at that point, I was I was a member of the Black Law Students Association. 
And um, can, during that same time, I, I took a job back home working for a law firm in Atlanta. And I was, I was going to be in their kind of litigation department. It was going to be my first time really experiencing big law. And it was the same summer. This is 2013. It's the same summer as the Trayvon Martin case. And so all summer long, I'm streaming this case while uh, while I'm at work. And it just like I couldn't take my eyes off of it. It got to the point where the IT department came in and they were like, what are you watching? (laughs) I, uh, you know, how some folks will maybe listen to the radio. I was I was listening to this trial. So. At the end of that summer, George Zimmerman gets off and I got an email from some of the friends that I've been doing some organizing work with in D.C. that uh, the subject was, what are we going to do? And I sat on the email for a couple of days and then I responded um, and I just talked about the need for us to have a space and a community where we could talk about what we just experienced and, and watching um, George Zimmerman go free. But also, I was missing what I loved about undergrad, meeting people from all over the world, access to space. Anytime that there was a, a, something that was happening in the community, I had a place to, to know that, you know, we could talk about it. And I was I was really frustrated that that went away um, when I got to law school. So uh, that was that was July uh, 13th. By July 16th, I sent uh, my business partner, who was my roommate from college, an email with no subject that just said what the idea was. And uh, when I got back to D.C. that August, we just started working on making TGS come to life. And so I still had two years left in school. That was uh, that was just after 1-0, so I still had my second and my third year, and I was talking to my parents about this this business idea, and they said, look, you know, we're entrepreneurs, we'll be you know, supportive, but you have to finish your law degree. And so for two years, I would go to school, and TK, my business partner, um, he would go to work, and then he would meet me at my apartment every night, and we would just work on the business every evening, mm. just trying to take a meaningful step each night um really with no background in most of the things that we were trying to to build i mean we didn't um we didn't really know what was going to be in the gathering spot but uh we used those sessions to really refine the idea so by the time i graduated from law school in may of 2015 um the day after i graduated we moved to atlanta he had quit his job and uh we started construction in October of 2015. Wow! Shortly after um, after graduating. Um. So you know, just like any you know startup today, you got to have a pitch deck and try to you know raise funds. Talk about the process to raise capital for a you know this kind of unique idea for a member club. Because like, yeah. what was your first like? Talk about your first pitch. Um, what was the kind of the uh, response to your idea? I mean, as I mentioned, we had no idea what we were doing. So it was it was tough. And, and when you have something that relies on space, it's it's really, really tough because, I mean, you, you need investors in order to secure space, but you need the space to secure investors. And so um, there was this this really kind of awkward dance that we were doing on trying to get those two things to 
kind of come together at the same time. Uh, and it ended up being 97 pitches before the first person said yes. And we started counting them because I mean, it was a painful process. Um, at that point, I'm, I'm 23, 24. Um, first time entrepreneur trying to raise capital for a, a project that while we, we 100% are not a, a co-working space because we had that work element part of it that was seen as being really new um, for what we were trying to build and folks just didn't see it and as we kept dreaming and working with our design team and the construction uh, teams the number that we needed kept uh, kept growing so at first it was a million dollar raise and then it became two million and then eventually um, it was it was over three and I remember talking to my dad and was like, look, I don't know how we're ever going to, to get this thing financed. Um, and he said to me, small ideas will keep you small. Just hmm. keep, keep dreaming. And so we kept fighting and, and never, I mean, there was definitely a million dollar version of, of TGS that we could have built, but we, uh, we made a, a promise to ourselves that we were going to get as much of our full vision for what the club needed to be out and we're just going to keep going um, and go go as far as you know as, as we needed to. It, it was a it was tough though. I mean, when you get told no all the time, and this is something that we talk about a lot, um, we started really to reframe those no's to to be signs that we were headed in the right direction, hmm. and would use them as confidence builders that we were seeing something that the market wasn't seeing, and so every no was really them not being able to fully grasp what we were talking about because back then if you think about it i'm saying we're going to put an event function next to a restaurant function next to a work function and we're going to do the whole thing of being rooted in community um folks just didn't get what we were talking about but for us that was the the powerful thing that we again it kind of found this this crack in the market that uh that no one else can see Talk to me about some of the the no's that kind of stood out. Like, what did the um, investors tell you why they said no, or what some question they brought up about your idea that they were skeptical about? Can you share something with that? I mean, there were a ton of things that folks were skeptical about. Um, they were skeptical about us as a team, um, as as first time founders. Uh, they were they were certainly um, not totally supportive of the functions of the club um, being kind of under the same roof folks were concerned about just our ability to to really build and curate a community in a in a real way uh, some folks didn't like the the food and beverage or the restaurant function i mean i've heard it all i mean for for anybody that's listening that is an entrepreneur i mean be prepared for that part of the process. I mean, people are going to try to take your your heart out of it um, and will not like your business for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I we, we've heard every possible reason why a person um, wouldn't want to be a part of the business. But again, for us, that was really building our confidence because we knew that we could see something that they couldn't see. And that's where the opportunity was. And for us, any good idea, when you when you think back to its earliest days, 
probably was getting the same reaction. So um, we just we we pushed past it. I mean, I, I and you know so much so that even you know recounting some of them now is a little difficult because I wouldn't hold on to a lot of those concerns very long. Um, I would hear them process what parts of it I thought could be helpful and then just keep moving. Let's talk about the 98 time when someone said yes. So was the pitch different from the previous 97 times that made it said yes? Or was it the investor that saw it? Talk to me why this investor said this 98 times said, yeah, I get this. I'm in. So I, I, I would I'll say that the mission that we've always been interested in accomplishing that has never changed, right? We've we've never had a pivot there. It's always been rooted in bringing people together, but the presentation of how we were going to get there certainly has changed. I mean, we, if I look back on our earliest pitches, they were bad in that we didn't understand the fundamental thing that an investor wanted to know, which is how am I going to get my money back? <laughs> we, would, we would talk about everything, but you know, how cool this would be and how uh, amazing the people were, were going to be. And folks were, you know, they, they were, I guess, uh, interested in some of that stuff. But we started to understand that the real object of all of those conversations was to show why we were the best team to do this and how they were going to get their capital back. And so, yeah, the 98th time, we we really been able to drill down. But the mission and why we were doing what we were doing hadn't shifted at all. It was really just about uh, presenting it differently. I mean, TGS is complex in a, in a lot of ways for all of the different things that you know, we, we tackle on a daily basis. And we could also see that investors were uh, pretty – simplistic in how they wanted to understand the business. And so instead of trying to pitch a super complex organization, although we knew that was what it was, um, one thing that I, I would say to TK all the time is that like, I know we're a zebra, but we've got to pitch like a horse, <laughs> right? Like investors, they know what horses are. They're used to horses. Um, yeah, we're a zebra and like, we will be a zebra, but we've got to like, get them introduced to the um, what we're doing as a horse. And from there, we can kind of show the complexity of the business over time. And I think that strategy helped us. Coming up after a short break, we get into how the gathering spot built on that first yes, the scale up to where they are today. Then race and corporate responsibility. With the backdrop of George Floyd's murder and the reckoning that followed, Ryan and I talked about the single most meaningful action corporations and government can take for real economic justice today. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Generator, a platform for the creative economy that connects startup founders, musicians, and artists. Information can be found at generator.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Verizon, helping 1 million small businesses through its Small Business Digital Ready program. This online curriculum is designed to give small businesses the tools to succeed in today's digital world. More information at citizenverizon.com. 
Support for Diverse Disruptor Season 2 comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Information on tech advancement, venture investments, and careers at innovation.nm.com. Support for Diverse Disruptor Season 2 comes from your membership and from UW-Milwaukee. UWM believes innovative ideas don't only belong to business majors. The UWM Lubar Entrepreneurship Center aims to help students in all majors develop creative ideas, advance careers, and get startups started. UWM.edu. We're back on Diverse Disruptors Season 2 in my interview with Ryan Wilson of The Gathering Spot. The idea had formed in Atlanta, and that's where the first club opened. But growth has been steady and swift, and The Gathering Spot has since scaled up to cities including Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. As you're visualizing the business concept, let's be clear. It's not exactly co-working. At least, it's not only that. The Gathering Spot adds other elements for a more well-rounded experience. We'll let Ryan explain how it all works. You know, with respect to, to, to companies that are in that business, we've never been interested in co-working. Um, for us, the business, and again, if you look back on just the first emails and conversations we were having, was always about people. It's about trying to figure out how do you create a context for people to know one another better. And so our thesis was that people connect through dining, they connect through experiences or events, and they connect through work. Right. And so that's why we wanted to have those parts of the space, because to us that those were all going to be used as tools to connect people. And so to understand the gathering spot through any other lens is really not to look at it um, the, the way that it exists for, for people. We we looked at the private club industry, saw that there really hadn't been much innovation in um, in the and what those businesses are, um, nor was there that much diversity in any way that you want to cut it inside of most private clubs. And so we knew that if we took a different approach and really emphasize this idea of like, why do folks that wear t-shirts and jeans every day not know people who wear suits and ties? Like, why, why does the startup community not know the creative community? who's writing all of these rules that keep people apart, right? Mm -hmm. And even when you look at the way that private clubs have been described over the years is that, you know, they're primarily corporate spaces. Well, for us, it was like, well, sure, I'm that some of the time, but I'm also social. So why can't the club that I belong to be relevant to kind of fully who I am? So the gathering spot was rooted in that. Like we were going to celebrate who you were as a professional, but also who you were socially and introduce you to no matter what corner of the city you were coming from to other people that we thought that you should meet and uh, would be helpful to you in either, again, like a business context, but maybe just as even being a friend. Hmm. Uh, and so we were never interested in, in, in work as a, as the, kind of the, the way for people to associate uh, the club. I mean, I've, I've long maintained we're not in the space business. We're in the community business. And spaces will change, or even like what we're experiencing now, spaces may shut down completely. 
but nothing about TGS has been shut down over the last several months because we're in the community business and that never actually went away even when we all had to go back home. I want to get into that. And I, I just want to go back to um, when you were pitching investors, as you know, the, the, you heard the facts that, uh, you know, black founders get like less than 1% of the um, venture capital out there. Black women even get less. Um, and it's just harder for a black founder to get invested in an idea. And I was listening to one podcast. I forgot the startup was, it was a, a row fitness. Um, I think it was how I built this talking about how this person had the product had had you know traction had all the stuff just couldn't get anybody to invest but then he sees somebody else with the same kind of idea and all they had was an idea getting a million dollars was that when you're going through this 97 rejections and was that in your back of your head that they look at you as a black man a uh, black founder see you as like they probably won't invest in you because of that was that was that in your head or do you feel that's the case of some of those no's? Yeah, I mean, look, the numbers are what they are. And and, and we have to, I think, uh, acknowledge that there, there is absolutely um, not an equal chance of, of getting funded as a black founder. And, and certainly if you're a black woman, it's even harder. Uh, we've got to acknowledge that for what it is. And so, yeah, we were super aware of all of the stats and and knew that. Um, you know, it, the, the, the numbers weren't in our favor. Our approach was different. Uh, we didn't take the the route of, of trying to talk to a bunch of, of venture uh, funds because we just knew that for what we were building, although the model um, could support it, that there, the, num- the stats were really bad there. So we focused on, on kind of family office uh, sort of, that 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 community of of potential investors and built a network through people telling us no so when folks would say no i'm not interested we would ask them to refer us to some other people that probably weren't going to be interested (laughs) and uh fortunately folks would tell us some other folks that we could um we could talk to but yeah we knew this we knew the stats and we knew that um it was it was rather unlikely. At at the same time, we had this attitude, and I, I still you know feel this way about about the company to this day that we were on a mission and doing something that needed to happen, and nobody and no and no system could stand in our way of making that thing happen, no matter um, how big and bad or how how racist. Uh, the system was um we knew that we were solving an issue that needed to be solved and we're going to do whatever we had to do to uh to get there so it wasn't pretty we weren't one of those companies um i remember the the first couple of weeks we were open i was talking to a guy that's that's known kind of in the ecosystem startup ecosystem down here and he said you know what's your burn rate and i remember just laughing and um kind of dodging the question because we didn't have a burn rate we were we were days away from closing um i mean we just we just we weren't ever funded in a way that uh gave us runway and Mm -hmm. you know we the the biggest thing at that time was just managing through that fear and knowing that and again i'm a huge believer in this that 
the ideas and dreams that we have as founders come from somewhere. Uh, my faith is, is super important to me. And I knew that, that this idea was there for a reason. And I had to like continue to, to fight for that thing to exist. Um, and that, you know, nothing would, would, could stop something that was rooted in, uh, you know, in, in, in good intentions and, had taken me away from my life plan in a serious way. I mean, I was supposed to be at that point had a law degree <laughs> and was deciding not to practice law. Um, I knew that there was a reason why this thing was being planted with me specifically. And I had to stay true to it. Let's talk about now the present. So back in March, February, March timeframe, 2020 went kind of a whole <laughs> 180 for a lot of people, a lot of people. Um, but- COVID-19 kind of came in and just said, you know, this year is pretty much done for a lot of people. Right. But, uh, being a space, as I said before, um, how'd you handle COVID-19? Like how do as a business, as a startup, I just love to know the thought process. Like what were you going through when like the stay at home orders hit and like, you know, physical spaces became kind of this, you know, shut down. How did you handle that? What was the process? What was your strategy? Yeah, I mean, COVID COVID presents an interesting challenge for us. I mean, you could have never told me at the start of this year that um, that this would be a part of the the kind of way we would talk about 2020. But I, I honestly, even going back to when we first opened, being afraid of failure just has always felt like a waste of time for me. Um, hmm. For me, it was like, I would go to these startup things and you would hear them talking about fail often and fail forward and all that stuff. And to be honest with you, I always thought that that framework was ridiculous because while you certainly can learn things when you fail, I didn't have like the room to fail. If I failed, there was like, it was, <laughs> it was over, right? And so I obsessing over failure, like finding me, was just not something I was willing to do. If it was coming, it would find me and I would walk out the door one day and it would be there and I would have to figure out what to do uh, from that point. So when COVID hit, and I, I and I've been saying this a, a lot, you know, if you're a, a black founder, uh, just given the stats we were just talking about, I mean, like we know crisis. We know mm-hmm. what it feels like to, um, to not have the no a bunch of money, talent, you know, like we, we know what it feels like to, to need to compete despite not having access to uh, maybe all the resources that you need. So when COVID hit, we've been through so many different situations over the years that my, like the mode went instantly into, I mean, well, what is possible? And trying to make sure that we stay true to why we started this, which was connecting people and I knew that given our digital platform and all the ways that we kind of invested to connect people online that were already happening that we just needed to to put all of our our efforts there and and wait for the world to open up so I mean the first week after it was supposed to be our four-year anniversary party um, we canceled the party March 14th closed our doors and uh, the event was supposed to be Saturday on Monday, uh, and if you look through that entire week, we shot like 20 pieces of content. 
And so we spent that weekend just uh, preparing folks and, and, and building conversations that we thought were going to be important for what everyone was facing and then shot them all week long. So our pivot was, uh, was fast, if you want to call it a pivot. But mm-hmm. my approach for this has always been, you know, folks have been saying social distance, social distance. And like, <laughs> I think from a health perspective, yeah, we need to socially distance. But from a, a like a mission in terms of what we do, we, 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 it was more physically being distant and like socially we could still do our work. And so our team just went into that mode. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's been our approach this entire time. I'm, never going to be one of those people that um, is going to sit and be sad because it just, it doesn't help mm-hmm. <laughs> get, get help in any way. So we, we've we put one foot in front of the other, like we've been doing and, uh, and kept pushing. How does it affect your members? Like how do your members respond to the content? How, what did the members expect from you during this time? I think the members expected to keep us uh, or for us as a club to keep them connected to one another and informed um, and encouraged. Right. And that's that's what we started to, to do. We created a fund. Uh, we started doing daily encouragement calls. We started profiling different businesses in a, in a much louder way. Uh, we started bringing conversations to our digital platform that were like very timely to what was happening each week. And. Um, I'm, I'm extremely grateful that the membership stuck with us. Um, we actually have have grown over this time period where, again, if you think about the business through the lens of space, that wouldn't have been possible. But when you think about it in terms of access to community, um, that was never canceled. So we just kept moving and uh, the community kept moving with us. Now, where we have paid special attention is that we have a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs and a lot of our efforts have been focused on making sure that anyone in our community that has a small business um, was supported to the the best of the club's ability and the community's ability uh, during this time to make sure that we all weather this storm together. So George Floyd, Bianca Taylor, um, I read that you reopened two days after George Floyd. How did this affect you personally? How did it affect you as an entrepreneur? And how did it affect the gathering spot? I mean, personally, it brought me back to the reason why we we started. And and, um, as a business, I mean, I knew that we were going to play a role in in being a part of the the response and at least giving people a space to be able to uh, strategize for what the response would be. yeah, look, this, this is this is getting to a point now where, you know, unfortunately, we've been to this movie too many times before, mm-hmm. and we uh we've got to do the hard work to go um, and look at the root causes of what um, what makes us have to come back to this the same conversation, and so that was a uh, that's where I've been centered. If you know corporation you know comes to you and say hey ryan do we want to go beyond the statements what what's some steps you would tell the corporation they should do a fortune 500 company invest directly into to black small businesses and leverage 
whatever thought leadership or institutional uh, skill sets that may exist to help those businesses get to scale and, and be intentional about it. So um, I think it's both it's both time and treasure um, that that's needed. But but certainly from a resource standpoint, I would direct those resources to um, to small businesses with the hopes of getting those businesses to meaningful scale. Something like 80 something percent of black owned companies don't have more than a single employee. And so we we have to figure out a way to get these companies to uh, to to larger sizes so that there are just employment opportunities and, and, and opportunities overall for communities to thrive without there being any, you know, we, we, uh, I don't think that we're, we're running towards a future that is, uh, is in the best interest of, of everyone. And then being a person who's interested in politics, I know, um, what kind of policies government can do to help with fighting systemic racism, especially on the wealth gap, uh, the economic entrepreneurship um, issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm somewhat of a broken record on a lot of these issues because I'm I'll always go back to resources. I think that sometimes we we have conversations about information, and there's this you know assumption that um, you know black folks there's a knowledge gap that exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, black folks are as or as 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 capable of, of of figuring out, and I think the history shows us this. Hopefully, we're going to end on a light note here. What advice would you give to a um, young black um, aspiring entrepreneur? Do it. Get out there and uh, and, and get started. And there there's there's no perfect set of circumstances. There are certainly obstacles that you probably. Uh, can feel and see right now, but uh, we need you to to go out there and and to to start that that business again. I believe that idea comes from somewhere; it's rooted in something, and you got to listen to why and and respect that you know the reason that uh, you have it. It it, it comes from something that um, you know will be will be helpful to people. So always stay true to that the the game in many ways is set up to to rob you of uh of that energy and take your spirit out of it but uh we need you and you're certainly capable there's no one better than you to solve the problem that uh that you want to solve so uh, start start tomorrow there's not going to be a perfect day to to get to get moving um but it uh, at the end of the day it will work out the way that it is supposed to work out but you've got to give yourself um the the freedom to really dive in and try for ryan wilson co-founder of the gathering spot 2021 has been even more eventful for the company than 2020 this year in addition to announcing plans for clubs in chicago and detroit ryan is also part owner of the country's largest hip-hop festival a3c in atlanta I want to close out with one last thought from Ryan. And this one goes out to anyone listening who's trying to make something happen, but especially for black people and business owners of color. Do it and, and know that the community has your back. Um, anything that's rooted in trying to, to be you know, helpful to folks, which I think a lot of our businesses are, um, those businesses will be fine. So uh We've got you. Get out there and uh, and go make that, that thing happen. Go make that thing happen. 
Huge thanks to Ryan Wilson for this motivating conversation. And we have one more to go. Coming up on our next episode of Diverse Disruptors Season 2, my conversation with Chris Bennett, founder of Wonder School, an end-to-end solution for family child care providers and centers. Like our previous guests, Ruben Guyona, Priyamin, and Henri-Pierre Jacques, Bennett is a child of immigrants. My parents are from Honduras. And within my family, you know, I'm one of 31 first cousins. So it's like a really, really big family. Like my family feels more like a high school sometimes. Like, <laughs> I, like I know some people. I know, like, you know, I know of people, but I don't know everyone. I'll talk to you next time on Diverse Disruptors. And in the meantime, check out the rest of season two if you haven't yet. I talk with two Milwaukee founders, Ruben Guyon in episode one and Dana Guthrie in our previous episode, who are making big moves in Wisconsin, plus two more founders from across the country. As a reminder, we got a whole first season available right now. Listen on whatever app you're using now and find the show notes at radiomilwaukee.org slash disruptors. Thanks for listening. I'm Tariq Moody, and I'll talk to you soon. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is presented by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Northwestern Mutual, and Generator, with support from Verizon, United Way's Tequity, and Alverno College. With handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab, Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by Nate Imig, and audio engineering by Kenny Perez. Segment producing by Salam Fatayer and 88.9's web editor, is Evan Retleski. Radio Milwaukee's marketing team is led by director Sarah Lahr with creative and coordinating support by Aaron Bagada. Community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director and Kevin Sucker is our executive director. Of course, biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content from Radio Milwaukee possible. If you're interested in learning more about Radio Milwaukee membership, visit radiomilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts, including Diverse Disruptors Season 1. That's at radiomilwaukee.org slash podcasts. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.